our time together. Thank you, Luke. Uh, it would be very helpful to keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 4, that passage that Richard read for us. Uh, if you're new or exploring Christianity, we're looking at four verses out of a book called Mark. In the Bible, there are four accounts of Jesus' life. Mark is one of them, and we're just looking at a few verses there. It's what I would call an enacted parable, one of the shortest parables in the Bible, and we're looking at it today. Before we do that, I'm going to pray. If you agree with the prayer, then please say Amen at the end. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that this morning you're going to speak to us through your living word. Father, as you speak, give us ears to hear and courage to obey. Amen. There is only one place in the entire New Testament where we find that Jesus is indignant. If I'm right, there's only one time where Jesus, the King of Kings, reacts and it records him as being indignant. If I'd stopped you on the way in this morning and I'd asked you what you thought might have caused Jesus to be indignant, I wonder what you would have said. Maybe you would have thought back to some of the lepers who came to Jesus and wanted him to touch them. And knowing that leprosy was contagious, he might have been indignant at that. Or maybe you thought of when the prostitute was coming back and crying at Jesus' feet and pouring the oil on his feet and it was in a public situation, maybe then, with the embarrassment, Jesus might have been indignant. Or maybe you think of his friend Judas, who'd spent a few years with him, lived with him, been taught by him, ate with him, travelled with him, and yet that supposed good friend Judas betrayed him. Maybe then Jesus might have been indignant. Or maybe you think of the religious leaders, who so often Jesus came to blows with, for leading people away from an understanding of God's character and His gospel. Maybe then Jesus would have been indignant. But when we read here in Mark and we see that Jesus is indignant, it's towards His own disciples, His friends, the very people who should have been assisting Jesus in doing His ministry, He is the one to whom His indignation is directed. Now, friends, it's a very simple story today, but it's quite profound and I believe it's very instructive for us as Christians to think through it. So, three quick thoughts this morning about these first verses. Firstly, Jesus reacts strongly. Jesus is indignant. It is a strong word. It probably implies a combination of things, disappointment, anger, dismay, He's displeased and he is indignant with his disciples. Now, we don't know the motives for the people who are bringing the children to Jesus, presumably the parents. It simply says that they were bringing the children to Jesus that he might touch them. It doesn't say that they were bringing the children to Jesus for healing or to get a meal or for a handout. Simply that he might touch them. I guess touch implies some sort of blessing. 
passing a blessing from an older person to a younger person was practiced culturally in the day and you can probably think of stories in the Bible where older people blessed younger people. And when we consider in the previous chapter, chapter 9, we don't have time to look at it, that at one point Jesus brought some children, had them stand in front of him and he said to them, he taught them and he said this, whoever welcomes a, children, a child in my name welcomes me. So it shouldn't surprise us, should us, that if the parents had heard Jesus saying that, they would want their children to come and be welcomed by Jesus as well. And so whilst the families are bringing children to Jesus, the disciples rebuke the families. But Jesus honours their request. And Jesus' response is in two parts. He corrects them and he teaches them. In his correcting, I hope you see that Jesus actually says it twice. He literally says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. He's forceful. But in teaching the disciples, he enacts a very short parable. An enacted parable is literally that, a combination of words and actions. The action of taking the children and putting his hands on them and blessing them. And the words, the teaching about the kingdom of God. Why does Jesus do this? He says, I'm doing this because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Well, secondly, let's think about the disciples. Why did they get it so wrong? You know, actually, part of me gets why the disciples did what they did. Jesus turns up. Jesus starts doing miracles. And not just any miracle. He's healing people. He's calming a storm. He even raises someone from the dead. His power is extraordinary. Power over sickness, power over nature, power over death. The disciples are impressed. But Jesus makes extraordinary claims, doesn't he? He's claimed to come from heaven down to earth. He claims to be the King, the Messiah, the one promised of old to come to establish God's kingdom here on earth. And the disciples are hearing this, they're seeing the miracles, they're listening to the claims and they've put Jesus on a pedestal. And maybe they thought that kissing babies was for politicians but not for Jesus. Well, we know as we read the Gospels that on a number of occasions, the disciples are slow learners. I suspect their problem is threefold. Firstly, they were finding it very hard to let go of their own views of this kingdom that Jesus was coming to establish. They're probably still thinking physical thrones, palaces, empires. They're probably thinking back to great David's kingdom. Secondly, I think they're too busy thinking about their own greatness. And indeed, in the chapter before, Jesus has caught them arguing privately amongst themselves about who of them is the greatest. Who's going to be the minister for finance in this kingdom? Who's going to be the minister for sport and recreation? Who's the greatest amongst the disciples? But thirdly, I think the, children, uh, the disciples do not believe that children are important. Now, friends, the reality was in much of the Roman Empire of the day that children were not seen as being important. Infanticide was practiced widely in the Roman Empire. Unwanted children were left outside, left to be exposed to either die or to be taken for whatever purposes they were taken for. 
Oh, maybe the disciples thought the children were a little bit important, but friends, we see here that they had a different perspective to Jesus on the children. There's a big difference between the way that Jesus sees the children and the disciples see the children. Jesus, so often as we read the Gospels, is countercultural, isn't it? We hear his stories, his one-liners, so often that we, we miss them, take them for granted. It was Jesus who said that the first will be last. Or it was Jesus who said, when you're hit on the cheek, turn the other cheek. It was Jesus who said, when you look at someone lustfully, it's like committing adultery in your heart. Or Jesus who said, you are to love your enemies. Jesus is countercultural about the value of human life. It's so important to see and to understand the view of humanity that Jesus and indeed Christianity proclaims. There is no higher view amongst men and women of human beings than that that Jesus teaches. Humans are nothing less than made in the image of God. Friends, our view of what it means to be human is critical. It shapes so much of the way we think about ourselves, the way we think of others and what we do with our time and our money and our lives. We live in a world that has all sorts of views, proclaiming all sorts of views about what it means to be a human. We cannot take it for granted that a Christian view is, is proclaimed in this world. There are many ethicists, philosophers, uh, politicians, leaders that we know who do not hold a Christian view, this lofty view of humanity. In fact, if you think about some of the big debates that we're having in our society, and there are big debates, debates that go from the cradle to the grave, or literally before the cradle, what it means for a child to be conceived and how we view that, all the way to how we treat the elderly at the latter stages of life. Our view of humanity, what it means to be human, is crucial. I was having coffee late last year with an old friend of mine who occasionally I play golf with. Uh, he would claim to be an atheist and he was having a bit of a rant about the way that someone had treated one of his daughters. And he said, my daughter's been treated like an animal. Well, I pushed him back a little bit. I wouldn't do it with everybody. I could do it with him because I know him well and he knows me. And I said, well, why on earth are you even upset? I mean, as an atheist, what's the difference between a human and an animal? We had a bit of a laugh. I did empathise with him. But he did admit, as an atheist, a human being is no important than an ant or a tree or a whale. He just didn't want his daughter to be treated that way. The Christian view is a high view, isn't it? That we're made in nothing less than God's likeness. All creation is precious, but not all the same. Human beings are afforded that amazing high status in God's world. I suspect that there wouldn't be too many Christians here today who wouldn't affirm this doctrine, this, this tenet of the Christian faith that we're made in the image of God. But I also suspect that we often fall well short of practicing the implications of this doctrine in our lives. You see, we live in a world that teaches us to evaluate human beings by the externals. The colour of our skin, the house that we live in, the job that we have, maybe our past. 
If you're one of the younger generation, we, have, we evaluate people on the number of Facebook friends they have or how many Twitter followers. And in doing so, we do not think Christianly. I think it's a lot harder than it sounds. The disciples, as good Jewish men, could have or should have known of Psalm 8 that we've read today. Psalm 8's written by David, the king of that great kingdom, the high point in Israel, ruling under God. Here's David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and your creation. And yet in that same psalm, David is almost mystified at the place that God has given humanity. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than angels and crowned him with glory and honour. David looks at humanity, he's sort of baffled. Oh God, this is amazing. And it's interesting when he starts that psalm and he's talking about God's goodness in creation... He doesn't say it's the philosophers and the leaders who are shouting out God's glory, but in verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. It's a view of humanity, Christians hold, that has shaped so much of what we do, hasn't it? We gospel because of that view. But Christians have also been led to make great sacrifices in terms of establishing educational institutions and helping the poor and sending up hospitals and charities and fighting for justice and against poverty because of the view of humanity that we have. It's a high view, but the disciples have fallen short. And Jesus looks at the children in a way that the disciples didn't. And so thirdly, that leads Jesus to teach this enacted parable about entering God's kingdom. The verses there in in Mark's Gospel said this, When Jesus saw thee, he was indignant and he said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. And he took them in his arms. And he blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Regarding these precious children, blocked by the disciples, Jesus says, don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And when Jesus turned up on earth and started his public ministry, what did he start teaching about? Was it denominations? Was it about the carbon footprint that human beings are leaving? Did he talk about church-state relationships or philosophies for well-being? No, he talked about the kingdom, didn't he? He turned up and he said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he kept on teaching again and again about this kingdom that's being set up with him as the king under God. People are being invited now to join this kingdom As we read through the Gospels, Jesus uses all sorts of different languages and metaphor to describe this kingdom, different aspects of this kingdom. Sometimes he's talking about uh, entering the kingdom being like a wayward child. We remember the story of the prodigal son, the son who rebels against the father and runs away and then the son realises what he's done and he comes back and Jesus used that, an image of coming back to the king and entering the kingdom. 
At another time, Jesus talks about the kingdom being like a wedding banquet, invitations going out to come to the party. Other times, Jesus talks about uh, the kingdom being like people who are sick and needing a doctor, needing to be saved. But the overarching thing is this idea of the kingdom that Jesus has come to set up. And he is the king, the Messiah, with the authority to invite people to enter the kingdom. Jesus is reminding the disciples here about the truth, about how we enter the kingdom. And in many ways, he's having a swipe at the disciples in his teaching here. He says, don't just welcome the children because they can, but unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you'll never enter it. What did he mean, this unless you receive the kingdom like a child? Well, it's often misinterpreted to think we need to be simplistic in our faith or childish. That's not what he's saying. Rather, we need to be childlike in humility the humility as humans to recognise that we're not God, we're not in control, that death faces us, that we all fail, we all fall short and we need God's mercy. You see, it's children who so often demonstrate that humility that we all need before our Heavenly Father. Uh, this week, as some of the staff at the school were returning, I was having a conversation with a staff member about his holidays. He said he had some highs and lows uh, the highs were good. I asked him about his lows and he said, I'm ripping my hair out about my two teenage children at the moment. He said, they've morphed into aliens. He said, gone are those lovely days where my children used to love coming for hugs and kisses. They loved holding my hand and walking down the street. They loved it when I went to the school gate and they'd run up to me. Now I've found out that I'm not the fount of wisdom I don't know anything, I don't understand how they're feeling and in fact I'm an embarrassment to my children. Well, those of you who are parents may well laugh at this, but friends, how often is it so similar with humanity between humans and their Heavenly Father? We think we know everything, we think we can do without Him and God even is an embarrassment to stop and to see your need of a relationship with the creator of the universe requires humility. Unless, says Jesus, unless you become like a child, you'll never enter it. Well, if you're here today and you're exploring Christianity and you're new and just reading your Bible, here is this wonderful truth that God has made this world and sent his son into this world and he calls all of us to enter this kingdom, to submit to him as the rightful ruler in this world. The question is, will we let him rule in our lives? Entering the kingdom is that decision to let King Jesus rule. So simple that even a child can enter it and yet so profound. But it requires humility. Well, friends, as we pull it together today, I hope that you notice the connection between how we view God, how we view people and what we do with the kingdom. I hope you see that a high view of human beings must lead us to want to help people understand the king and the kingdom. If we hold a high view of human beings, then our desire should be 
that they will hear about Jesus the King and how to enter his kingdom and receive life to the full. We will want them to know Jesus, which is exactly the response of Jesus to the disciples. Don't hinder them, because the kingdom of God belongs to each of them. To love people is to want them to know how to enter his kingdom, to know the king, to know his forgiveness, to come into relationship with that king on his terms. And so, friends, we've been reminded today, haven't we, to look up at Jesus. He's the one that shows us the character of God. As we read through the Gospels, we find Jesus is somebody who loves everybody, the poor and the rich, the blind and the seeing, the lame and the fast, male and female, sick and healthy, sinners and saints, old people and young people. Regardless of language, background, past, colour, mistakes, health, here is the king with his arms open wide. Not only have we been reminded to look up to Jesus, but to look out to the people around us, to have the eyes that Jesus has, to see humanity as precious, needing a king. Well, friends, the disciples were slow learners, so slow that Jesus is indignant. The only time. Do you have eyes to see? And do you have hearts that long that people around us would come to know the King? And Jesus took the children in his arms, he blessed them and he laid his hands on them.